The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. I'll start off this morning with a, a question, which is, have you ever been let down? Have you ever felt major disappointment? I, I actually, you know, it's funny, when you, when you prepare to preach a sermon on disappointment and being let down, the Lord will really do some things in, in the way of giving you some illustrations. Um, this week, uh, I try to play Frisbee every summer in a league, uh, Ultimate Frisbee try to stay in shape. I'm not going to be able to do this forever. I have to enjoy it while I can. Um, and so all week long, I look forward to playing Ultimate Frisbee. Uh, and on Thursdays, for some reason, this summer, every Thursday has been stormy and rainy. And this, this particular Thursday of this week, it was actually beautiful. And my family came, we had lunch, and I was thinking, this is going to be such a great Frisbee day. Uh, I drive all the way up to the, the Hoover Met and the uh, it still looks great, and then as soon as I pull up, these huge clouds just come over, and it doesn't rain, but it lightnings, and in the contract, we're not allowed to be on the fields when it lightnings, and so I've been looking forward all day long to playing Frisbee, and it was a huge letdown because I got to play zero Frisbee that day. We were supposed to play two games, and for two hours, it just lightninged, so I was, I was really upset. Um, that's a little s- silly example of, of being let down, but even, even yesterday, I was at a wedding, and the wedding was a huge letdown. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, we got a text in our BCM group chat about one of our summer missionaries, the first one that was supposed to go out to Montreal. And uh, her plane got canceled. And then the reroute got canceled. And this morning, I get another text saying the re-reroute got canceled. And their group leader is sick. And as she thought she'd be waking up in Montreal on her work site this morning, and she's, she's still in Birmingham and doesn't know when she's going to get there. And this is a girl who was so worried about fundraising for her trip. And this is her first, you know, especially out of the country, but really her first mission trip. And she's so excited. And what a letdown it is when she's, try- she's put her schedule aside. She set her, her time aside to go serve the Lord. And she's, she experiences such a major letdown. Uh, if, if, if I've asked that question, what, what have you ever been disappointed in life about? What have you been let down? Uh, and you can't think of something, um, I'd be very surprised. Right? Life is full of disappointments. Life is full of letdowns. Uh, and if you can't think of something, then just wait till like this afternoon, because you'll, you'll feel it again. Sometimes we, our memories don't work, but we're quickly reminded. What do we do with these disappointments? How do we find hope amidst the letdown? And these are, these are questions that Exodus 5 and 6 can help us with. So would you read with me Exodus chapter 5? Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw. Lost one place. Give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. 
Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. They, therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it. But your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. And the taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday, as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. And I've put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done this evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Would you bow with me? God, as we look into your word this morning, would you do a work in us? by showing us who you are clearly, more clearly than when we walked in, to know who you are and to know the great salvation you have won for us in Christ. We ask that now by your precious spirit and in your precious name. Amen. The scripture starts off with the word afterward. So what is it coming afterward? Well, chapter four, we saw last week, it ends with one of these lift-ups. Hopes are high. Chapter 4 ends with Moses and Aaron going to the people of Israel. Aaron says all that God has said. Moses does the signs that God gave him to do. And the people, what? Believe. They believe. And not only do they believe, but they do what naturally flows from belief, which is worship. They bow their heads and worship. Think about it. 400 years of slavery. 400 years. They've been waiting, praying, how long? Oh, Lord, how much longer. Talk about a spiritual mountaintop experience we end in chapter 4. It reminds me of the period of time between Malachi and the New Testament. We, we call it the intertestamental period. There's 400 years of silence. God doesn't speak through his prophets and he doesn't indirectly through his prophets. He doesn't speak directly to his people. He's silent. But then this crazy guy that eats bugs shows up in the wilderness. In the Judean desert, he says the Messiah is coming and things start stirring, right? Hope's are lifted up. Here in this story, the people are saying, God is coming to rescue us. Like, I don't, I don't want to just blow past this 400 years thing. Like, think about, you order something on Amazon today. 
When does it get there? Probably the next day or two days. And in, that, in those moments, you're like, man, where's my package? Like we, we don't have this kind of patience. That's one day, 400 years. And it's, they're not looking for like a package to be delivered so that, you know, you have your groceries for the week or whatever Amazon delivers these days. Um, they're waiting for rescue from slavery. 400 years of this. Hopes are high. I mean, this guy just walked in here, threw his staff down, became a serpent, did the hand trick. Like, he, he has shown us God is moving. The greatest letdowns occur after the greatest liftups. But we start with Moses and Aaron going into Pharaoh. What do they say? Let us go. Let's go. The Lord has spoken to us. Let us go make sacrifices in the wilderness. And Pharaoh's response, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Um, this isn't really a serious question from Pharaoh. I'd probably not to tell you that. He's not really interested in learning who Moses' God is. Who is the Lord? He's not actually seeking spiritual wisdom. This is mainly about Pharaoh's denial of any authority over him. Who is the Lord? I'll, your God, I'll turn my nose up at him. I'm not... I'm not threatened by him. No one tells me what to do. And it seems like in the beginning of chapter 5, this is going to be a battle against Pharaoh and the Lord. And it will be. It will be. But that's, that starts in chapter 7. Chapters 5 and 6, the Lord battles with his people. He has to deal with his own people. He has to make sure his people recognize his authority before Pharaoh recognizes his authority. And I love Moses' confidence in this. Like his, his hopes are lifted up so high. Everything is worked out. Everything that God's promised him would happen with the people, that they would believe him. They believe him. And then he goes into Pharaoh. And he even offers this, in verse 3, this uh, warning. Like, no, Pharaoh, like, seriously, who is the Lord? You need to do this. Or else pestilence and the sword will fall upon us. And some people debate as, is this us? Is this the Egyptians as a whole? Is, is, or is this just the Israelites? So will God punish his people for not serving him? Or will God punish the Egyptians for not letting his people go? And I think if we look back in verse uh, 20 of chapter 3, God has already said that he's going to strike Egypt when Pharaoh refuses to let him go. So Moses is offering a fair warning, a fair warning to Pharaoh. And based on what happens next, I don't think Pharaoh takes it too well. We see in the next verses his anger and his political shrewdness. The first thing he does is he, he sets up an impossible workload, an amount of work that nobody can do. All those bricks you're making continue, the same amount of bricks, but I'm not going to give you any straw, right? You, they would get mud from the, the bank of the Nile, and they would mix it with straw, and it would form bricks to build their infrastructures. And it used, there used to be a system in place. Somebody would gather straw and they would make the bricks and that was their daily chore. But now, no straw. There is no system now. You are the system. Do everything. Just imagine, if you're a nurse, imagine that not only do you have to give your patients medicine and check up on them, but now you have to go fill all their prescriptions. If you're a teacher, instead of just teaching all day, you now have to prepare lunches for all your students. If you're in construction, break rocks for your own use in the concrete. Like if you're in the, the Alabama power, cut down your own trees for power poles. Like just imagine all this extra work. It, it's impossible. 
This was not meant to, this was meant to completely break their spirits. And as we'll see in chapter six, it works. It works. An impossible workload. But not on top of that, we see a shrewdness in the fact that he, he sets up conflicting loyalties. There's two kind of people in the story. There's the foreman and uh, the taskmasters. The taskmasters are Egyptians. They're Pharaoh's people who are overseeing the work. But then there's the foreman. They're, they're the people of Israel. And they are watching their people work. And they have to daily report to these taskmasters how many bricks they made, who, was, who met their quota, who didn't meet their quota. I mean, imagine this. You're, you're, you're conflicted because if you don't tell the truth to the taskmaster, if, they don't, if you don't meet that quota based off the people you're in charge of, Pharaoh can dock your wages. You can't feed your family. He could, I mean, he could do worse things than that. He's, he's killing children in the first chapter. Like, you, you don't know what he's going to do. But you feel like you need to do what, you're doing, what you need to do in order to please the taskmasters. But at the same time, you're of the people of Israel. And your loyalty is, is hopefully to your own people. And to rat them out because they're in an impossible work situation? Like, you don't, you don't know what to do. So not only is the work too much, like the mental pressure and stress, I can't even imagine. I can't, it's it's, um, it's kind of like a New Testament tax collector without the financial benefit right? A tax collector could do his job because he was receiving financial benefit. He would betray his own people and take money for uh, the sovereign country. And, uh, but he was chosen from the people that he was taking the, the taxes from. Well, these four men are chosen from the people that are working. There's no benefit to this. It's just, you're in a lose-lose situation. Like just, I, I'm just trying to paint a picture of like, what kind of burdens are on these people's backs, not just physical labor, but mental, spiritual, emotional anguish. Impossible workloads, conflicting loyalties. Sometimes, um, sometimes you can withstand a tough job when you have good relationships with the people you work. But how dreadful it would be when both of these things, both the work and the relationships, fall apart at the same time. And they can't handle it. So what do they do? They try to fix the situation. How? Well, they go and see the man up top. They go see Pharaoh. And Pharaoh rats out Moses and Aaron. He says all this has to do with the fact that those two guys came in here and they said that you want to go take vacation time and go serve in the wilderness. Like, do you understand how big of a workforce you are to us? You, I'm not going to let you go. And in fact, if, you're, if you even have the thought about going on vacation, you must have more free time than you realize. So go gather your own straw. I'm not changing it. And they leave. And they leave. And it's interesting to point out here in verse 18, Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's words. He says, go now and work. Work and serve are the same Hebrew word. And in Exodus 10, we'll get there later, chapter, or verse 8, when Pharaoh is in the midst of all these plagues and he's starting to get sick of everything that's going on in his country, he says, uh, go now and serve. In other words, almost the, an identical phrase in the Hebrew. So the first one, he's saying, go and serve me. Go and serve Egypt. In Exodus 10, 8, when the plagues are getting the best of him, he'll change his mind. He's saying, go and serve the Lord. So what Pharaoh's doing here is he's assuming the divine right to, to the Hebrew service. 
He says, I am your God. Serve me. He sees himself as their God. And remember, keep in mind, this is all after the spiritual mountaintop experience. So not only am I not going to obey the command of your God, I'm going to be your God. You serve me. It's funny, when they leave Pharaoh's household, who's waiting outside for him? Moses and Aaron. Literally says it. They're waiting on them. They want to see what Pharaoh said. Like, please, like, what we said, it didn't work. But maybe if you guys go in and uh, he'll listen to you and they come back out and they're really, really upset. The Lord look on you and judge you. So they go to Pharaoh, calls him idle. Moses and Aaron are waiting outside and they say, Pharaoh's going to kill us. No blame's on you. Our blood will be on your hands. I don't know about you, but whenever I feel responsible for something bad that happens to someone else, that is way worse than being responsible for something bad that happens to me. If I'm speeding, okay, you know, give me the ticket. I did it. But if I cause or inflict harm to somebody else, that is a lot to handle. That's a lot to handle. It's a, when we feel responsible for the suffering of others, it's too great a weight to bear I think of how pastors, if they're taking their job seriously and they're calling the people to serve the Lord, to serve on mission, and, and they go to some overseas country where it's, it's illegal to spread the gospel, and whoever they called with their message by reading the word of God and teaching it is killed for their faith. Like, I've, I've never had that happen. Uh, but one of my main jobs at the BCM is to call people to serve as missionaries. And I don't, I don't ever want to think that's not possible for it to happen to me as one of these summer missionaries goes out that something really tragic happens. And I know it's possible because it happened. In 1999, in Shelby County, a girl served as a summer missionary, a pastor's daughter. And she was in Mexico. And after serving for a little while, they went to the beach to just have a fun day. And the undertow was very strong that day. And she drowned. And not only did she drown while she was serving as a missionary, she drowned trying to save the life of a little girl who was drowning in the same undertow. Four people died that day, all servants of God. Like, what do you do? Like, I'm not talking about disappointment that's like, I want to go play Frisbee and the weather doesn't hold up. I'm talking about disappointment that says, I have taken my life and put it on the line for the mission of God. And this is the kind of thanks I get. This is, this is what's happening in this moment. That's why Moses says at the end, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? Like, think back of where we've come through Exodus. Moses wasn't like, yeah, I'll do it. I'm really happy to do this. It took convincing. And this is what happens. Like, again, I'm trying to paint the picture. This is not a small letdown. This is like as major of a disappointment as you can get to the point where people are losing their lives and their livelihood when they've been promised deliverance by God. What do you do? We have expectations when we're serving God. Even if we don't say it out loud, we expect things to work out a certain way. And deep down, we think it's only fair if everything falls into place for us, since after all, we're working for the Lord. He's sovereign. We're working for him. And when it doesn't work out, we say, I've been sacrificing, but for what? Maybe you've entered a career field to serve others, teach children, serve sick, care for the elderly, protect the oppressed, but your paychecks leave much to be desired. 
And now you're angrily accusing God of not providing. God, why did you ever send me here? Maybe you've joined a church plant, and nine years later, you're still in a school. God, we're trying to do your work. You've not delivered us at all. Why don't we have a church yet? God, you have failed us. You have let us down. We can rag on Moses a lot, but if I'm honest, like my heart says these things sometimes, right? And I think if you're honest, even if you don't say it out loud, most of the time these thoughts are in our heads. God, you failed me. You promised this, and it's not working out. You've let me down. Moses accuses God of doing evil. That's the first thing he says, right? Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why have you done evil to this people? Is that right? Did God do this? It's, it's interesting that one second later, Moses says that Pharaoh has done evil to this people. Is that one right? Which, which one is it? It's true that Pharaoh has done evil to the Israelite people. It's true. And he knows that he's put an impossible burden on them, and that is evil. But what's God's role in all of this? That's the question. What the scriptures don't allow us to say is that Pharaoh has somehow overpowered and derailed God's plans for his people. It does not allow us to say that. It also doesn't allow us to say that God is unaware of their oppression. He says over and over again through chapters 1 through 4, I see the state of my people. He knows about it and he has the power to stop it. Then why not? What the scriptures do allow us to say is that God always has a purpose in our suffering. We learn that if you were in our Joseph series. We learn that in Joseph's life at the, at the end, chapter 50, verse 20, uh, where God says, what you meant for, where Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, that many people might be saved through years of famine. So you think of all the highs and lows, the letdowns and the disappointments and the complete bummers that Joseph went through. And it all had a purpose. It all had a purpose. Did, did Joseph know the purpose at the time? I don't think so. There was great purpose in Joseph's suffering. In Exodus 9, verses 14 to 16, and we'll get there later. We're just going to brush by it um, quickly. We learn that God has actually raised Pharaoh up and given him his dominion so that when Pharaoh opposes God, God might prevail and show his unstoppable power to the watching world thereby making his name great among the nations. This is, there is great purpose in the tyrannical reign of Pharaoh, in Joseph's life, in his suffering, in the suffering of the people here. There is great purpose in suffering. I think of Luke chapter 24. You're probably familiar with this. This is after the resurrection of Jesus, and there's two disciples that have been following Jesus that are walking on the road to Emmaus, and they're talking about everything that's happened. But The thing is, is they're not really sure what the resurrection means or if it's really true. They've just kind of heard some news and they're discussing it as they they walk along the road. And Jesus comes next to them, but they don't recognize him. He's in his resurrected body and their eyes were kept from seeing him. And it's so funny. It's it's ironic. I mean, they're talking about Jesus and Jesus says, well, what are you guys talking about? And he knows. I mean, he knows what what they're talking about. And he, he knows that they're talking about him. And the people say, well, you're the only person in all of Jerusalem that doesn't know what's going on concerning Jesus. And he says, oh, well, tell me, what is, what is going on concerning Jesus? And they say in verse 19, 
that Jesus of Nazareth was a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And that the chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. And this was a complete letdown. Why? We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had high hopes and we were let down. That's what these people are saying. Jesus' response in verse 25. Oh foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Their disappointment slowed their hearts. Their perception of the circumstances changed the way they viewed what Christ accomplished on the cross. They discounted what God had promised through the prophets. And what's the solution? How does Jesus fix it? How does he lift them up after they're let down? He tells it to them again. The scriptures again. The story, the promises of God. He interprets the word of God to them. That's how he lifts their spirits. And he says this phrase, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer? All suffering that God allows is necessary suffering. That's what the scriptures teach us. But it's mostly for reasons that we will never know. Passages like this, are, are Luke 24, are fantastic reminders that God does not allow suffering just for the heck of it. And, but they do not reveal precise details for our current suffering. One day we might know all those specific answers, but for now we look to the cross as the objective evidence that God has held nothing back in solving the problem of sin and suffering. Right? But here and now, when we don't have the answers, how do we find hope amidst letdown? And I'll, I'll give you three ways. It's a before, during, and after. Letdown occurs in a narrative sequence, right? Hopes are high, then they're dropped. It's a story that we're living that we experience letdown. So before letdown, during letdown, and after. How do we maintain hope? Before. Before letdown, reflect on where you are. And not only where you are, when you are. Reflect on where and when you are. What do I mean? There is no easy life in Egypt. There's no easy life in Egypt. Moses. And the people of God are in Egypt. There's no such thing as an easy life there. Where we are today, there's no such thing as an easy life. They haven't made it to the promised land yet, right? Remember, this is a story. We haven't reached the end just because God has promised something. We still have to live through Egypt. And you're, you're not a citizen of Egypt or a citizen of Babylon or a citizen of the world, however the Bible teaches it, but you still live there. You're in a world that is hostile to the things of God. Reflect on that. Remember that. We are still fighting a spiritual battle with sin, death, and Satan now. The power of sin is broken. The penalty of sin is paid for. But we are still fighting a spiritual war. There is a God of this war world. There is a ruler of this world, according to John. There is a prince of the power of air, according to Paul. And to be surprised when disappointment come, comes would be a bit like having a baby and then being surprised by a dirty diaper. It just comes with the territory. Where do you live? 
You are not in heaven. God is sovereign, but we're still in Egypt. So expect things to happen. Expect letdowns. Expect disappointments. Spiritually, prepare yourself for it. And sometimes we become a little spiritually spoiled, especially with Western Christianity's hashtag blessed culture. Right? We expect things to just work out for us because God is on our side. Protect yourself from developing this sense of entitlement. How do you know if you have fallen into this sense of entitlement? It happens when we begin to take ownership of God's plans. And we, tre- we try to rewrite the script in our own wisdom. Expecting things to be perfect here and now based off of how we would write the story. And what Moses' story and Jesus' story tells us is that even in obedience, we should not expect ease, comfort, or success. Right? It, do- it-, it doesn't matter that Moses goes into Pharaoh and says what he's been told to say. Right? Expect persecution. Who is Pharaoh? He's, he's God in his mind. He's going to try to hold on to his kingdom as tightly as possible. Expect pushback. Just reflect on where you are before disappointment and letdown happens. I know it seems counterintuitive, but reflecting on the fallen condition of our world keeps us hopeful. Doesn't that sound counterintuitive? When we maintain a biblical perspective on where we are and when we are living, we can keep disappointment strictly in that category of disappointment without falling into despair. Secondly, before, uh, before a letdown, reflect on where you are. But during, in the midst of letdown, remember what you've been promised and what you've not been promised. There's no easy life in Egypt. Why? Because God never promised an easy life in Egypt. He never promised it. What had God promised Moses and the people at this point? I will deliver you from the Egyptians into the land I have prepared for you. Has it happened yet? No. Will it happen? Yes, it will. I will be with you. Has God forsaken that promise? No. He's still here. He's still with his people. I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. Has it happened yet? No. Will it? Yeah, next week. It's coming. It's coming. I will give you favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they give you many great possessions before you leave. They'll plunder them. Has it happened yet? No. Will it happen? Yes, it will. God has promised these things, but he has not promised them immediately. That doesn't mean that he has forsaken them. Oppression and persecution does not mean you are forsaken. In fact, what he promised was that it wouldn't be easy. He promised that Pharaoh would be more than stubborn, Hardened, in fact. And he promises us the same things in our Egypt. Second uh, Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Expect it. Expect it because of where you are. He's promised in Matthew 16.24. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Does that sound like... Um, we should have great expectations of what our Christian life will, will look like in this world. What's the picture there? Carrying a cross, an instrument of death. Expect it. John 16, in the world you will have tribulation. He just says it. Just expect it. Expect tribulation in this world. But take heart. I have overcome the world. 
He promised future deliverance. And, and I, I will redeem. I, I will deliver. It's on the way. God has not failed. He, it just hasn't happened yet. And, and why do we expect God to return, Christ to return at the end of time? Well, because of stories like this. Because of stories like what he did with his people in Egypt. Because of the fact that Christ came. Because of the fact that Christ died on the cross. Because of the fact that he rose again, we have assurance of future promises. That's why we expect. It's not wishful thinking. It's grounded in objective fact. He has done these things. He will do them again. But don't expect complete deliverance from trials and persecution and disappointment and let down now. Completely. Don't expect it. He didn't promise it. And just as a side note for me, as someone who spends a lot of time thinking about evangelism, don't promise something to somebody else that God has not promised them. Right? I, I think sometimes we, we try to make the gospel better than it is, as if we could. And oh, if you believe, God will prosper you. You have a business? Expect great, great profit. You want a family? Just go to church. You'll find a husband. Like, we try to make the gospel better than it really, than, than what God has promised. And it really, all it does is dumb it down. It, it softens it. It weakens it. Don't promise people things that God has not promised. And they, they, they're disappointed when it doesn't come. Well, you should promise people when you're evangelizing, promise them God. He will be with you. And in that promise, he will never forsake he will never let you down. He will be with you. That's our promise when we do evangelism. We must be keepers of the promises, guardians of the good deposit. We do not tamper with God's word and promise more than what God himself has promised. Do not try to improve on the gospel. It cannot be done. And when we remember what God has and has not promised, we often find that we are expecting delivery in a different way than he has promised and at a different time than he has ordained. And this book, these promises in this book keep us in check. When we feel major disappointment, let's make sure that we're, we're, we're realizing those disappointments often come from thinking that God is going to do something he has not promised. That'll save you. That'll save you from major disappointment. And I, I don't, I don't want to paint a picture as if there's not true disappointment in the Christian life. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul's talking about how he's you know, he is struck down, but not destroyed. He's, he's afflicted, but not, you know, not completely obliterated. Like he's, disappointment, letdown happens. It's real. That's why the Psalms are full of laments. But Paul's never driven to despair because he knows the promises of God are greater than the disappointments that we can face. And to remind ourselves of what God has actually promised will provide true hope amidst those real disappointments. The last point, after a letdown, rejoice in what you've learned. Rejoice in what you've learned. And for this, we're going to read uh, chapter 6, verses um, one, to four, 1 to 13. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. 
Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. At the end of chapter 5, Moses comes to God with a heavy weight on his shoulders. He's looking for an answer to the situation, but what he offers God in that moment is less of a question and more so an accusation. This is not recommended, um, and it's, it's, it's not what we see the lamenting psalmist doing, accusing God of doing evil to his people. Uh, trust me, I'm not coming from a place of self-righteousness here uh, because Moses' prayer sounds an awful lot like what I and probably most of us think in, in times like this. But how, what I want to point out is how God responds. How does God respond? If it were me, he would have wiped them all out. Like, how dare you? Like, Moses doesn't recognize my authority. I thought of, uh, for sure my people would. And they don't believe. And and he comes to him with an accusation. It should have been that the Lord wiped them out for their unbelief. But it's a good thing I'm not God. That's not what happens. The Lord doesn't even take the bait. He doesn't even take the bait. He doesn't even respond to the question of doing evil. What does he do? He shows patience and grace. That's it. He shows patience and grace and immediately encourages them by restating what he plans to do. And not only what he plans to do, but also who he is. Four times we see, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. God's encouragement comes from a, a mighty revelation of who he is. And it's not just words. It's not just words. He says in, in, in verses two to three, I'm the Lord and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but by my name, but uh, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. First of all, what the heck does this mean? Um, there's a subtle difference between knowing the name of the Lord and then knowing the name of the Lord, right? Right? Um, the promises that were made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are about to be filled in Moses' generation, and Moses will know the Lord in a way that Abraham, and Isaac, and Jacob did not get to experience. How, how, how do we say this? Isaiah 52, verse 6, um, a, a passage that comes after almost a thousand years from Exodus Isaiah prophesying about a coming deliverance. He says, therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day, they shall know that it is I who speak. Here am I. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't know the name of the Lord. The Lord tells Moses, you're going to know my name. And then Isaiah is like, oh, you didn't know the, the name of the Lord. My people are about to know my name once I deliver them. 
Now, this is like an experiential knowledge of the Lord. To see and feel and live through his deliverance. That is to know the name of the Lord. Jeremiah 16, verse 21, it's the same kind of context. He says, therefore, behold, I will make them known. This once I will make them know my power and my might. And they shall know my name is the Lord. To know the name of the Lord is to know his power and might. And it wasn't time to show that in the same way of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's day as it is now with Moses. Moses got to know the Lord in a way that they didn't because they had not seen God like this. Not to say that God wasn't the God of the patriarchs. I don't want you to get that impression. He says so himself that he was and still is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And not to say that Abraham didn't know the real God. He did. But Moses was about to witness the divine power of God in a way the patriarchs did not. And guess what? Moses didn't get to witness the divine power of God in the way that we have, right? Isn't that crazy? Like we know God better in, in a different way than Moses did. Like sometimes we think, well, we didn't have these conversations on the mountain like Moses did. Uh, but what we have seen God do in the person of Jesus Christ is a greater deliverance than what he did for the people of Israel out of Egypt, right? This should blow your mind. You, the spirit of God dwells within you in a way that it did not dwell in people in the Old Testament. God is, is communing with his people in the most powerful, special, and unique way here and now than he ever has before. And it will even go up a notch when Christ returns to the point where when we dwell with Christ in the new heavens and new earth, we, we don't even need the sun because he'll be our light, right? Uh, bodily with Christ. I hope that blows your mind. What, um, what do we do in these moments of, of disappointment? Uh, we, before letdown, we reflect on where we are and when we are. During letdown, remember what God has promised and what he has not promised. And after, rejoice in what you have learned in the mighty revelation of God that he has brought you through. In these moments, pray that God shows you more of who he is. I think of Paul in 2 Corinthians 12. Three times he pleads for the Lord to take this thorn from him, and the Lord doesn't. He prays for deliverance. But Paul actually finds hope and rejoices in this. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. This is what the Lord has spoken to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul learned that our God is a God that can work through weak people in a mighty way. And he learned that in real time. He learned that through his own experience with the Lord. In these moments of disappointment and letdown, God gets to show off his power and his provision to us in a way that we've never experienced it before. It's in these moments that we really get to see and know who God is. And it results in praise. It results in rejoicing. It creates a longing in our hearts and it teaches us how, to, how precious God's deliverance is. 1 Peter 1, 6-7 in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Moments of disappointment show us that we have a greater hope in Christ, that we should not expect paradise here in Egypt 
but paradise when we dwell with God forever. And when we realize how much we are formed and taught by these moments of disappointment, these moments of letdown, we can rejoice. Like, actually rejoice. Not in a fake way, but rejoice truly that we have a fuller knowledge of who God is and a deeper longing for his deliverance. Which brings the last question. What to do with his genealogy? Well, for that, you can just ask Conrad. Um, he's the genealogy guy. What I want to, to point out in the genealogy, uh, we, we won't read through it, not because the names aren't important, I understand, but because we're running out of time. Um, what I want to do is, is, is show you that these, this genealogy isn't the rolling credits, right? It, the movie's not over. It's not the end of the story, and here was the list of characters. It's, it's the exact opposite, actually. This genealogy is a sign of hope. It, it, it's showing continuity of what has come before and connecting it to what is happening in the present part of the story. Reuben and Simeon and, and, and the sons of Israel and all the way down to Levi, the priestly tribe, the, the one that, that Aaron and Moses both come from. Right? That, that there's a special focus on the tribe of Levi and the fact that Moses and Aaron come from this household. Right? Um, it, it's a way of saying, if nothing is to come, or most people skip over these genealogies, uh, but when we read them, we, we see that they're full of hope. Because if they weren't there, uh, it'd be like saying, all this Egypt stuff in Egypt, nothing came of it. Like, why put a genealogy of connecting the past to the present if everything, if everyone just died in Egypt? Who cares where Moses and Aaron came from if the Israelites die out? Gene genealogies are a sign of hope of how God is working from the past to the present. Just think about how the entire New Testament begins with a genealogy, Matthew's gospel, 14 generations of past characters plus 14 generations of past characters plus 14 more generations of past characters Again, these are not the credits after the closing scene. It's the opening of the new covenant. This is how the biblical authors connect what has happened in the past to what is about to happen. And how does the genealogy itself end? With Jesus Christ, the deliverer who is greater than Moses. It's a sign that the story is about to get good. Right? Genealogies are full of hope. Hope, even amidst letdown. Hope, even amidst disappointment. This, this is, uh, I want you to survive these things. I want you to survive through disappointment because it's going to happen. But how? First of all, just remember where you are. Remember where you live. Reflect on that. Don't expect complete deliverance while you're still in Egypt. Right? Don't get your hopes higher than God has his hopes. But during a letdown, remember what you've been promised. Don't promise yourself something that God has not promised you, right? God's promises are great enough. You have no need to add to them. And after, rejoice in what you've learned. Be grateful for suffering. Be grateful for disappointment, not because we actually like these things, but because what they produce in us, joy and praise. And by doing so, I pray that despite great disappointment, we find a greater hope in Christ. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.